Well, good morning, Oceanside Sanctuary. We are excited to have you with us again today on Facebook and YouTube as we continue to practice our worship and our fellowship together in this way. Last week when we came together and decided to do a, a worship gathering online a little differently and have everybody share a passage that had been meaningful for them that week, the passage that I shared with all of you was the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. This is towards the end of his ministry. When he enters into Jerusalem, it's right after his triumphal en entry. And I read to you that passage that's you know, fairly well known about Jesus going into the temple courts and turning over the tables of those who are selling doves and exchanging money and putting people into debt so that they could worship. And I, I read that passage to you because during a week where there was growing upheaval in the United States to protest anti-black racism and police brutality, what was heavy on my heart were the examples of Jesus's actions to act and to speak against the oppressive forces that existed in his world. And as I turn on the news and I read the news just like you do, and I see everything that's going on, I can't help but think about how Jesus did this over and over again in his ministry. So today what I want to do is visit a little bit of a different passage with you. If you have your Bible, you can open it up and turn with me. We're going to look at Mark chapter 2. So whereas last week we were looking at the end of Jesus's ministry, today I'm going to ask you to take a look at something that happened towards the beginning of his ministry. You see, when Jesus entered into the temple and overturned those tables, he was engaging in something that we sometimes call a prophetic act or a prophetic drama. And it turns out that this practice, this ancient Jewish practice of prophets doing things dramatically, acting out prophecies, was a common theme. In fact, we see this in a couple of Old Testament passages in really, really weird and, and odd ways. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 27, we see the prophet Jeremiah actually instructed by God to fashion a yoke out of wood and iron. You know, a yoke that goes over the shoulders of an ox so that they can pull a heavy load to plow a field or to pull a cart, you know, that kind of a yoke. Well, God comes to the prophet Jeremiah and says uh, to create a yoke out of wood and iron and put it on his shoulders. And so Jeremiah literally walked around with his yoke on his shoulders to make a prophetic statement about the judgment of God that was coming to the rulers in Israel because they acted unjustly. A similar story to that, we find this all throughout the Old Testament. A similar story can be found in Ezekiel chapter four, where Ezekiel, who was probably one of the weirdest Old Testament Jewish prophets that we, we read about, in Ezekiel ch chapter four, what he does is he takes a knife and he cuts off all of his hair. He cuts off the hair from his beard and he takes all of that hair and he divides it up into three piles. And God tells him to take one pile of that hair that he cut off and burn it and take another pile of that hair and take his knife and stab it after sprinkling it around a mock city that he had created. And then to take the third pile of hair and throw it into the wind so that the wind just carried it away. And just like Jeremiah's act, his prophetic, dramatic acting out, of this yoke of judgment, Ezekiel's sort of weird, strange act of cutting off all of his hair and, and dispersing it in these three ways became a way of dramatically demonstrating to the rulers of his day how God's judgment was going to be coming to them. Now, Jesus 
as a kind of archetypal prophet enters in during the first century and he takes up this same kind of vocation. He takes up these same kind of activities where he goes about in his ministry, he doesn't just teach with his words, he doesn't just tell about parables or sayings, for example, and he doesn't just heal people, he also commits these dramatic acts that are meant to symbolize what God is communicating to people at that time. And that's where we pick it up here in Mark chapter 2. If you open up your Bible to Mark chapter 2, verse 23, we're going to read about another one of these prophetic acts, these sort of Old Testament style dramas that Jesus plays out in front of his critics. Verse 23 says this, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, this is Jesus again, he says to his critics, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, now a little background on this story. Of course, Jesus is wandering around with his disciples. He's going from town to town. He's a kind of Old Testament style itinerant prophet or preacher. And of course, that means that he and his disciples are essentially homeless. In fact, Jesus challenges uh, one of the folks who's thinking about becoming a disciple. He challenges him, the rich young ruler, to sell all his possessions, give everything to the poor, and come and follow Jesus. Jesus says elsewhere that uh, birds have nests, right? And foxes have holes in the ground, but Jesus and his followers have no place to lay their head. In other words, Jesus and his followers were poor. They chose to live a life of poverty, going from town to town, house to house, in a kind of itinerant way, living out the kind of life that the poorest people in their communities live. And it turns out that in the Old Testament, there are laws allowing the poorest people in the community to go into the grain fields and to glean from those fields. So poor people were literally allowed by Old Testament law to go into those fields and take the grain and to strip that grain between their hands and to roast it over to over a fire and eat it. In other words, provision was made for the poorest people in the community by Old Testament law. Now, what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 2 is he is availing himself as a poor person of those very Old Testament laws. But here's the catch. Jesus actually commits this act of gleaning from the fields with his disciples. He commits this act on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath, of course, is the day that the Old Testament requires that we rest from our work. And so for Jesus, who was a first century Jewish rabbi, to go and to pick grain from the stalks and to rub that grain between his hands to remove the husk and then to maybe crack that grain between some rocks or roast that grain over a fire, all of that, according to Jewish tradition and Jewish custom, would be work. And therefore, he would be breaking the Sabbath. Now, Jesus' critics, of course, are watching all of this, and they jump at the opportunity to criticize Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, which is, for his day and for Jews today as well, 
one of the holiest days and the rest of Sabbath is one of the holiest religious practices they have. And so Jesus is criticized for this activity. I can't help but think that Jesus did this on purpose. He knew, of course, that it was the Sabbath. He knew that it was tradition that you ought not to prepare food and cook food on the Sabbath day. He knew perfectly well that his critics were going to accuse him of Sabbath breaking by doing this. So why did he do it? Well, I think he did it for a very specific reason. I think this particular prophetic act is a kind of protest against the injustice of the religious elites of his day who used laws to subjugate and oppress and hurt people, especially those who were poor. And Jesus gets right to the heart of this at the end of this passage when we read, when he concludes in his teaching, uh, look at back here again at verse 27, then he said to them, this is sort of Jesus's conclusion at the end of this prophetic act, at the end of this protest, Jesus says, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Think about that just for a moment. Jesus doesn't claim, for example, that he didn't break the Sabbath. And if you open a Christian commentary or even a Jewish commentary on this passage, you'll find a lot of ink being spilled in defense of the idea that Jesus didn't actually break the Sabbath. But I think it's important to note that Jesus doesn't defend himself against the accusation of Sabbath breaking. Instead, he puts the law of Sabbath in its proper place. The simplest way that I can put it is Jesus sim simply says this, the law was made for man, man wasn't made for the law. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, what's more important, keeping the Sabbath or feeding people who are hungry? People who, if they go without food, are, are in danger of dying. Jesus says that laws weren't given to us so that we could obey them. Rather, laws were given to us to promote our health, our well-being, and our flourishing. But unfortunately, sometimes, and I know that you know this is true, sometimes laws that were meant to help us grow and thrive and be healthy and flourish actually end up getting in the way and making things worse, causing people to be sick, causing people to live uh, harmful and, and oppressive lives, and causing people to be subject to exploitation from others. That's just the reality of laws. Sometimes the very best intention laws, the most well-meaning policies end up having a negative effect on us. And when that happens, it ends up having a negative effect, not just on those who are directly hurt, not just on those who are directly victimized. It has a negative effect on those of us who witness it and can't do anything about it or feel powerless to do something about it. In fact, there's a term for this. It's called moral distress. There's a growing body of literature around the idea of moral distress. And the whole idea of it is this, that when you are able to see somebody else suffering, when you're able to see somebody else being victimized or exploited, and something is standing in the way of you fixing that problem, it causes great moral distress in you. Now, we've been talking over the past several weeks about the idea of resilience and cultivating a spirituality of resilience, and it turns out that one of the things we've learned from this growing body of literature around moral distress 
is that one of the best ways to cultivate resilience is for you to learn how to act courageously in the face of moral distress. Now, I don't know about you, but it occurs to me when I read about these sorts of things that as a nation, as a people, as a society, right now at this time, we are all suffering from a kind of moral distress. When we see videos of black men like George Floyd being murdered in front of our eyes, even though it's across the country, even though it's outside of our direct ability to do anything about it, when we see a man whose neck is crushed because a knee leans on his neck for eight minutes until he's asphyxiated, it causes moral distress in us because we can't solve that problem. And we live now in a time when because of technology and social media, we are exposed every single day to moral harm and moral injury that we, for the most part, don't feel like we can do anything about. Some of the symptoms of moral distress include emotional exhaustion, disengagement from relationships, and a kind of uh, distress that creates anxiety in you because you feel guilty about the fact that you can't solve this problem. I think as a nation, we are suffering under the symptoms of moral distress. And I think one of the reasons we see such an incredible upheaval of protesting uh, and pouring out into the streets with signs and with action to speak out and to uh, demand reforms and changes so that things like this don't happen again, so that people like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor never have to be victimized again. The reason we such, see such a great outpouring at this time is because we literally have to act courageously and publicly in order to regain our resilience. The ability then to take action, to do something, to say something, to make change in a substantive way turns out to be one of the most important spiritual practices that we can engage in in order to become morally and spiritually resilient people in times like this. I wanna encourage you to reflect this week on how you can begin to take courageous action in the face of the immoral acts that you see, whether that's in your community or in your Facebook feed or on a video that's been shot from somewhere across the country or across the world, I think it's critical to begin to ask yourself how you can take some kind of dramatic or prophetic action that's courageous, that allows you to stand for what is publicly moral and what is publicly right. This week I had the, the privilege and the opportunity to take part in, in an SDOP, a San Diego organizing project sponsored um, press release and, um, and press conference down in San Diego at the San Diego Catholic Diocese where I was able to join with 30 other San Diego area clergy colleagues and was given the chance to speak out uh, from my heart about how we need to make real substantive policy change in the areas of law enforcement and police tactics so that we never have to see people killed in front of our very eyes again. Let us repent of white privilege gained on the backs of black bodies. Let us repent of polite white society, our tone policing of righteous black anger. 
Let us repent of white economics and the looting of black America for white profit. Let us repent of white identities gained at the expense of our souls. KPBS News. In a time like this, I want to encourage you as members of the Oceanside Sanctuary to ask yourself how you can engage in some kind of action too. Even if it's small, whether it's joining with a peaceful protest here in Oceanside or uh, joining with signing a petition to bring about substantive policy change, or maybe it's volunteering with our Justice Works team so that we can take real action to see real lasting change made. Whatever action you take, doing that publicly and courageously is what allows you to move past that place of moral distress and gain the sort of spiritual and moral resiliency that will help you to last through these difficult and trying times. I wanna to end today by just saying a prayer and inviting you to reflect on how God might be calling you to engage in those kinds of acts. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity for us to gather in worship again today, even though it's across Facebook and YouTube, even though we aren't able to be in the same room together, we know that your spirit is binding us together, joining us together in ways that we can't totally understand, but we trust that you are good. We trust that you are working in our midst. We trust that you are bringing us as a church and as families and as individuals into opportunities to exercise our faith in ways that really matter, to exercise our faith in ways that intervene in the lives of others so that we all have the opportunity to grow and flourish and enjoy the lives that you have gifted us with. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.